You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. You're listening to The Sports Fix. All right, I am here. Aaron is here. Tommy is here. Uh, the show's presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them we told you to call. Um, Tommy made it a point before we started recording this show just moments ago. Please let me talk about the award that I got. And per usual, we will start the show with Tommy talking about himself. I might want to point out that the minute I said that, Aaron <laughs> cut off my microphone. Yes, he did. You know What award did you win this time? Well, actually, I told you about this before, but now I'm getting it presented to me. The Boxing Writers Association of America uh, awarded me the Nat Fleischer Award for Excellence in Boxing Journalism. It's sort of like a career achievement award. And Friday night up in New York at the Copacabana. Wow. uh, I'll be presented uh, with that award. So we're getting on a train tomorrow, heading to New York tomorrow night uh, to the Boxing Writers Dinner. And I'll be presented with an award that Red Smith has won. Wow. Dave Kindred has won. Bill Gilday has won. uh, Dave Anderson has won. The late Dave Anderson. Yes. I'll be pre- it, it's given one you know every year to a different journalist who has you know in the opinion of the boxing writers had a career of boxing journalism excellence and somehow I found myself on the list. So will you have to make a speech? Yeah, I probably. I've got a speech prepared. You do? Yeah. How, who will be there? I mean, it will this be you a, know, a- t- there'll be boxers there. I think Tyson Fury will be there. Okay. Uh, there'll be a lot of boxing writers. What about boxers that you know? Uh, probably not. You know, I don't cover boxing like I used to. Uh, so there won't be a lot of boxers that I know, but it's interesting. I, in, in the speech, I I point out that I was very lucky in that I came along in the nineties and I'm not sure people realize this. That was the golden age of boxing in DC. You had like five world champions. Yeah, you had Riddick Bowe, who moved here. You had two middleweight champions in William Joffe and Keith Holmes. Right. You had a junior welterweight champion, world champion, in Sean Bay Mitchell. You had a middleweight champion, Simon Brown, and one of the best weight fighters of all time in Mark Johnson. So it was a great time to cover boxing in this town. There was a lot of it, and there was a lot of championship boxing. So I was lucky uh, with that. So, I mean, I, I thank those guys, but I don't know if there will be any fighters there who I know – like, I don't know if Ray Leonard will be there or Evander Holyfield or any any of those guys. I know that Ray's a big fan of yours and always was. Remember when we did the Lunch with a Legend series when we were doing the radio show, the, the one guy we, we never got, no. we tried, yeah. was Ray Leonard. And the only reason he would have considered it was because of you and told me that a, a couple of times. And I said, well, you got to do it then because Tommy and I have a fun time doing this. But he was never in time. It never really synced up where it's, he could do hard, it. It's hard to I know. He to lives to in L.A., Ray, I think. Ray, Ray down. I was fortunate enough to get him on my podcast uh, once, Cigars. And curveballs, and the one, the one thing. This is this is really bragging, okay? But I don't mind it. No, you don't. Okay, there are people who are recognized in this business because of who they work for. This is a recognition because of my work. It's certainly not because who I work for. Again, I, I mean, the people who have won this award are from the New York Times, the New York Daily News, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times. And as much as I love the Washington Times, and particularly in sports, it's not on that level. 
So any recognition I get for what I've done is because of what I've done, not who I work for. Do you have a favorite column of all time or a couple of you know memorable columns that you think were taken into consideration for this award? Uh, or is it just a lifetime achievement? It's a lifetime achievement award. One of the things I did early on, Reddick Bowe had his first title defense after he won the title from Evander Holyfield. I think it was February of 93 at the Garden. It was a, it was a tomato can, Michael Dokes. And he knocked yeah. him out in one or two rounds. But I convinced Rock Newman, who was always very good to me, and I, I love Rock, have a great relationship with him, to let me spend a day of the fight with Riddick, the whole day, including in the dressing room right up until about two minutes before they walked up to the ring. So I was there when he got his hands taped in the dressing room when the referee came and gave the instructions. And then the next day, I wrote a, a, a lengthy feature about spending a championship day with Riddick Bowe. Nobody ever really gets a chance to do that. that I've never kind of read access. anything like that. What, what was remarkable about the day? What, what do you remember about that day and what you wrote? Well, how loose Bo was, how, how just loose he was. He was fighting at the Garden, his hometown, you know, defending his heavyweight championship. And the referee comes in and gives him the instructions in the dressing room. And Bo puts his hand on his shoulder. So I just want to ask you one question. Can you count to 10? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and he knocked him out, you said, in the first or yeah, second round? Yeah, first or second. I mean, it, it, it was a walkover fight. It was it was Riddick's first title defense, more of a coronation than anything else. Well, congratulations. I mean, you've got a lot of hardware. You've won a lot of awards, but this sounds like it's an important one to you. You know, most people that know you know this. You really have been um, a, a great boxing writer over the years. It's it, Would you consider yourself closest to that sport as a writer than any other yeah yeah i would and the remarkable thing was when i first started at the times in 92 nobody was really covering boxing and i'm thinking this is the best beat on the paper they're the best stories you get to go to vegas a couple of times a year so i i said hey you know i put my hand up i'll do it yeah and i never let go of it but you were a boxing fan prior to that yeah i grew up in a house where uh, middleweight champion Nino Benvenuti was a hero in, in our house. Yeah, we, we used to watch boxing when I was a kid, and that included my mother. <laughs> Your mother was into it, too. Um, all right, well, congrats. That's Thank awesome. You. Uh, and my wife is going up, and my son Rocco oh, that's is going great. up, too. That's great. Uh, I, I would love to, to hear, is there any way, I'm sure it's not going to be YouTubed or anything, or will I it? May, maybe I don't will. Know. Because I'd like to see your acceptance. I don't know. And, and see what they say. Who's presenting it? Is there, Does somebody just announce it? Or do they need a presenter? Because I'll be glad to present you. <laughs> I'm not sure who's presenting okay. it. I haven't gotten those details. Um, we've got a lot to get to today. The NBA Finals start tonight. Tim Legler is going to be on the show. Uh, Scott Van Pelt a little bit later on on the show as well. Um, and we'll have our own conversation about the NBA Finals with predictions um, as well. I, I'm really looking forward to this. I, I, I have. I know not everybody's been into the NBA playoffs, and I know a lot of you that listen to this podcast listen primarily more than anything else for DC sport sports, the Redskins in particular. But I'm a huge basketball guy. So is Tommy, and I've enjoyed these NBA playoffs. I think they've been fascinating, especially what's happened in the East with Kawhi Leonard having an all-time run, which we talked about um, the other day. And 
I'm fascinated to see how Toronto matches up. I think a lot of times, you know, I, I read through a lot of the the people that I like um, and respect, and, and Legler's definitely one of those, so I'll be interested to see what he thinks about these finals. I had Phil Chenier on the show yesterday. I think Phil's got a super sharp opinion um, as well. Um, but I think a lot of times you just don't know because you're judging it on – you know, in the early portion of the playoffs, you're judging it on regular season stuff, which doesn't resemble at all what these playoff right. games are like. And then when you get a matchup like this and you point to two regular season games, it's meaningless to point to two regular season games, especially given that Kawhi Leonard didn't even play in one of those two games. And sometimes I feel like you're, you don't really know until you see it. Like, I want to watch this game one and then I'll feel much better about what how they match up against each other, even though we know in a, in a long series it's about adjustments. But I, my, my initial sense of these NBA Finals, even though I am rooting for Toronto, as I was in the Eastern Conference Finals, and I picked Milwaukee, I don't see how Toronto can beat Golden State four times out of seven. I just don't see it. And one of the big differences um, that they will face, with or without Durant, because I personally don't, I think Durant obviously, you know, makes them a better team, but they are very capable of winning this series yes. without him, and I think they will. But I think one of the big things is that Golden State's just going to be too hard to guard for Toronto, and I think because they'll have to guard every possession in a way in which they didn't have to guard Milwaukee in every possession, um, where you know Milwaukee was really give it to Giannis at the top of the key or the circle, and, and let's see what happens. That's easy to guard. Not not easy to, in, in the player to guard, which they did a great job on, but it's just easier team defense where they always had fresh legs in the fourth quarter, and that's where they won a bunch of these games to get here, and I just don't see that happening against Golden State. So my early my my gut and i think my prediction which we'll get to at the end of the show i really feel like golden state is going to win this series even though i'm rooting for toronto and i hope i'm wrong the only reason i was really interested in the nba playoffs this year particularly the conference finals was because of toronto i mean milwaukee too i was really interested in that in that matchup and you're right in a way it's a lot like boxing styles make fights you know styles you know, how they match up in this series will dictate a lot. But I'm going to stick with the abstract as the difference maker here. Golden State, you know, th th this is familiar territory for them. They own the NBA Finals. It's theirs. Toronto is a visitor. This is their first time. And I think, I think in every sport, that counts. I think in every sport, the team that's been there and comes back and comes back, has got a distinct advantage over the team that's there for the first time in handling the pressure, handling the moment, handling the bad times, handling the good times. I mean, Toronto's so crazy right now about the NBA, uh, you know, playing in the NBA Finals as a city, it, 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 it could be insane. And But you got to handle the good times as well. I just think that, boy, I think Golden State uh, is deeper uh, on their starting in their starting five, and uh, I just think the experience of being in the in the NBA Finals so many times is really gonna uh, play into into this series. I think that's a big part of it too. Um, I the it's interesting, Aaron, isn't it that 
Toronto is a plus 230, 240 underdog, and yet they're favored in game one. Yeah, I was um, looking it up yesterday. I think this might be the first time in, like, decades that that's happened. Yeah, it's strange. Look, the heavy favorite in this series doesn't have home court advantage right. in this series. So they're playing the first two on the road, and I think maybe the long layoff for Golden State could have impacted so, the point spread um, so as well. So if they're doing that, and Toronto already has home court advantage, and they think they're favored to win Game One. Then they ha- they would then that would be a significant advantage. Well, it's just it's odd in that the team that has four games at home and is favored in the first one is also a heavy uh, yeah. heavy underdog in the series. I think what we'll see personally, I th- it, obviously it depends on tonight's results. But I think if it's a tight game tonight and Toronto wins or loses, I think Golden State will come back as a solid two to three point favorite um, in game two. I-, I wanted to just take one moment and, and I'll spend more time uh, talking to Tim Legler about this. But, you know, Durant's not going to play tonight. There's a possibility he could return for game two. Um, this is what they've done without him. If they continue to do this without him, Tommy, and Steph Curry in particular continues to play at the level that he's playing at, and let's just say he has a great finals, is the MVP, Durant doesn't play, they win four games to one, they actually lose a game. Um, I believe that we will then, you'll have to elevate Curry to a level that he doesn't even exist now, and he's one of the greatest of all time. In my view, the best ball handler shooter in one body I have ever watched, skill-wise. But if he plays great and is the finals MVP, has a great series, and they roll past Toronto without Durant, that is that elevates him to now one of the all-time elite greats in the game. We'll be talking about that after this series if that happens. You know, I, think, I mean, he's top 10 right now yeah, he of is, all time. He is, and here's, here's what's more important. He's changed the game. Oh, no doubt. I mean, he's changed not just the NBA game, but he's changed the game for a generation that's grown up watching him. When kids are on the court, they want to be Steph Curry. They all do. So uh, he has literally changed the game. His impact, whether I like it or not, can't be ignored. It's been significant. And uh, on the other hand, if if it if 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 your scenario elevates Steph Curry even more, it diminishes Kevin Durant. No doubt. I mean, I wrote about this in in, in the Washington Times yesterday. We talked about this on, on the Tuesday podcast. Uh, Chris Broussard, and I, I'm not a big fan of Broussard, but he's right when he says Kevin Durant's worst nightmare if the is the Warriors go on and win this series without him. Again, it's not the argument that are they better without Durant. No one's saying that. But they, do they need Durant? And if you don't need arguably one of the best players in, in the NBA, then then, then that's, that doesn't say much for the player. Uh, he, cho- he chose, and I use this word, and people get angry about it because he, he was the finals MVP. In, 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 in two NBA finals. But he chose to be a passenger on, on, on a championship train rather than the guy who drives it. And you're not going to get the same amount of credit. 
No, you're not. Um, Tim Legler coming up. Van Pelt coming up. We'll do some more NBA um, with them. The Nats won again last night. My God, they they were up 8 nothing, 4 nothing in the top of the first. Um, and Annabelle San- Sanchez ended up pitching great. It helps when you're up 8 nothing after two innings. <laughs> um, but all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they have now won 5 of 6. Now, Philly's winning too. Harper had a monster night last night. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that. Um, but, uh, and he hasn't, you know, had big nights recently, but had a big night, um, last night, but you know, this was an offensive output that we just haven't seen very often, but they've, they're getting it together in particular, um, is, is Juan Soto, who's been really, really good. Yeah. It, it, it helps to have Matt Adams healthy and in the lineup. He's a big bat. Uh, Howie Kendrick has got to stay he, in that lineup. He has to stay in but the you lineup. You just got to keep finding places for him to play. Uh, and, uh, you know, so those guys have, have had a, a big impact. You know, what was funny was, uh, and I, I, I probably talked about this here on the podcast, but I know I talked about it when I was on Wednesday with Chad on 106.7 The Fan. I basically, uh, you know, reminded everybody how wrong I was about Annabelle Sanchez, that I came you back from him spring to be training. A, the, the best, su- the, big, the biggest big surprise. surprise. Yes, you did. And I was surprised at how bad he was. So I figured, well, you know, this guy keeps making me look like a fool. And he turns around last night and pitches a one-hitter, you know? So that's the guy I saw in spring training. That's the guy who who reminded me of Levon Hernandez because he's got about 15 different pitches. Mm-hmm. He just couldn't throw any over the plate uh, it, it, so far this year. Now, who knows what will happen the next time. Like you said, it's easy. It's easier to pitch when you got a 4 nothing lead in, in the first inning. But it does show what he's capable of, particularly against a good hitting team like the Braves. Look, as part of this, you know, five out of six, I mean, it was the Marlins first, but the Marlins were red hot coming into that series. They had won six in a row, and then they win two in Atlanta. But, you know, more than anything, they are hitting and scoring runs. They they scored 12 against Miami in one game, nine in another, and they just got 14 last night in Atlanta, a team that, you know, during that losing streak couldn't really generate much offense um, at all, um, while also seeing you know night after night a bullpen let them down. Uh, but they uh, they're you know they're eight games below five hundred. They're nine and a half out. But it's you know I, I keep saying this. It's like what you said. Just win. You win two out of three. You win these series. You you're you're going to work your way back into the mix by the time we get to like right around late June, early July. If they if they continue to do this, Philadelphia has actually really picked it up here recently. And they are no longer, I don't believe, I think I looked at this late last night, they are no longer the worst division leader. I think the Cubs are. So, you know, they've won like five out of six as well. Yeah, you see, I, I, I don't think the Nats, no, uh, unless they get unbelievably hot, can work their way back into the, the fight for the division title. I think at best they can hope is to be a 500 winning team, be respectable. I don't think the wild card is coming out of, the National League East. I could be wrong. I just don't think you can reconstruct an entire bullpen at the end of May. I mean, you know, who was it who gave, came in and gave up uh, the Grand Slam last night? Yeah, uh, uh, McGowan. McGowan. So they still have they still have a very limited, uh, like you know, you can count on two fingers the guys that they think they can count on in the bullpen right now, and that's uh, Doolittle. And Suero, when when he when he doesn't, you know, throw that nuclear pitch that winds up destroying him, 
so they still have a big bullpen problem. They're si- they are signing guys off the street, left and right. I mean, they literally are are scouring the country. They si- they signed a, a reliever, Johnny Vetters, uh, who's had th- three Tommy John surgeries. Was hor- horrible this year. I forget who he pitched. He pitched with the Braves, I think, and uh, was released. They signed him. He's in he's in the minor league somewhere. They, I think they've signed three or four guys in the past three or four days, all pitchers. They are they are basically holding a tryout right now for guys in the bullpen who can get guys out. Uh, they face Cincinnati um, on the road for three, and Derek Dietrich, who has really been an early season, you know, uh, su- surprise with 17 home runs so far, um, and he he's been on a roll. Uh, w- you ever spend any time in Cincinnati? Yeah, I was there last year on a college visit with my son is that why i was there really yeah, i think so not much that doesn't do much for no me. not much for me either. no <laughs> no it's no unlike it, cleveland which cleveland i love had, cleveland has more to it i agree yeah. even though cleveland's got the worst of the reputations yes for whatever reason i actually think cleveland's a better town than Cincinnati. yeah i do too and yeah. actually you know people forget uh, people like talk about Columbus. I've been to Columbus a few times. I used to have to go to Columbus many years ago a lot. I probably spent uh, a lot more time in Columbus than I ever did Cincinnati or Cleveland. That's the biggest city in the, in the Ohio by population. Is it really? Yeah. Well, ton of insurance companies, a um, lot of business, and then of course the university, you yeah. know, Ohio State, which um, is not the entire city, but certainly makes up. I'm sure uh, you know is one of the biggest employers, if not the biggest employer. Probably. I would think in the in the city. Um, real quickly on the on the Redskins. So it was another OTA day um, yesterday, and let me just say that I'm <laughs> have at it if you want to really get into the tweet by tweet description of what's going on during OTAs um, about you know who's looking good and who isn't. OTAs may be valuable to players and coaches, even though, by the way, that's been debunked by players, obviously, and, and even coaches to a certain degree. Um, it's truly worthless from my standpoint to think that because Haskins missed a few receivers and threw a few picks and Case Keenum you know, didn't, that we can conclude anything. You know, follow your favorite Redskins beat reporter to your heart's content on Twitter. You should do it. Um, the guys that cover the team on a day-to-day basis. But please, don't read too much into the results that they are reporting on May 29th or May 30th from OTAs. Tommy, I, I, there's so many people that tweeted me, what did you think about Haskins Day? What about Jimmy Moreland? He apparently had a big day in OTAs. Three interceptions. I didn't even respond because I just thought I'd do it today. Training camp. Training camp rarely reveals much of anything that you will see in the regular season. I promise you that OTAs reveal less. Less. I'm really into Montez Sweat. I can't wait to watch him play a game in the regular season, not an OTA workout. Jimmy Moreland, by the way, did have three picks yesterday. Good on him. I want to see him get one pick in a game in Philadelphia in the opener. That would be awesome. But anyway. Kevin, Kevin. And I'm talking to those Redskins fans that understand what I'm saying here. Kevin doesn't seem to understand it. <laughs> for for a smart segment of the Redskins fans, they know that OTAs, mini camps, training camp, that's all they've got. 
this is it. <laughs> this is the happy time. This is that. This is these are the good times. Uh, I don't. Think this of is it the that time way. to celebrate. People don't think. Fan, fans don't think of it that way. Well, this is when they get excited. They should. How many opportunities last year during a regular season did they have a chance to get excited? What do you mean? The first half of the season. Excited. Excited. Yes. Like genuine. When they beat Dallas at home last year, I to, didn't say there were no times. That, I just said, I just gave you a time. I know that. I didn't say there weren't any times. Okay, well, so but they're how limited. many times? They're limited. Well, of course you they know were limited. They were they're limited last year. They're very limited. Okay, right now, there's an unlimited amount of good times. So Redskins fans, don't listen to Kevin. <laughs> Enjoy every there's OTA no. interception no. that you read about. Enjoy every Haskins completion, every dime that you see that you read about him dropping on a receiver. Bask in it. Enjoy it. Take it in because it's all you're going to have. Um, I'll tell you what. Uh, this isn't something that Tommy understands, but I understand about all of you who are still fans. Um, most of you understand that none of this should should drive any conclusions about anything. What a killjoy. Well, you know what it is, Tommy? It's... I, I, every every single year, and and look, part of it is because we're doing content, we're doing radio shows, and for the beat reporters, they've got to be there and they got to tweet and they got to. But it is preseason is worthless, utterly worthless. What always appeals to me more with respect to something that I can grab onto and maybe learn something from is listening to the coach and listening to him talk. You know, in his daily press conference during training camp or like he had a press conference yesterday you know after the OTAs which actually leads me into um a funny moment with Jay Gruden yesterday when he was asked about hard knocks Gruden was Tommy actually asked about this um yesterday uh and I think it was JP who asked him the question and then JP followed it up with a follow-up question but hear how Gruden handled the question about hard knocks yesterday after OTAs well, that's not up to me. So if uh, we're forced to do it, then obviously we'll have to make it work. And, uh, you know, it's a process. It can be distracting at times, but really they do an excellent job as far as keeping out of your business. Um, uh, so uh, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I think our guys would probably have fun with it at the end of the day, but initially be a distraction, so to speak. But uh, I think really if they were smart, they would go to Oakland. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, what an entertainment value that would be. Antonio Brown, John Gruden, Paul Gunther, Montez Perfect. I mean, incognito. These guys got to be crazy not to go to Oakland. I mean, they can do us next year, maybe. Not if you make the playoffs. Eh, if we don't make the playoffs, I probably won't be here anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> they can come here and do it all they want. You know, when Jay Gruden is the, the voice and face of this organization, the organization looks much better. Period. Because he's something that the owner, although we don't know anymore because he's a recluse, something the team president isn't. He's self-deprecating. Yeah. Yeah. He, he and, and he's a likable guy. Of course. No one else no. is like, I mean, I like Doug. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I like Doug. But no one else is likable like Jay is. No. It's too bad he's not a great coach. I know. Um, I know. Now, what's interesting is Jay Gruden has had experience with hard knocks. I know. He was on with the Bengals. And 
We got a different Jay Gruden. Oh, that's great sound. Let's see, actually, uh, let, let's play the, the Jay Gruden sound if we can find it, Aaron, when the Hard Knocks did the Bengals, because that was a sound drop that we played over and over again when the Redskins hired Jay Gruden, but he got after it in yeah. one of those meeting rooms. Yeah, as where, the where, where, where did that guy go? <laughs> I, well, we don't know that that guy doesn't exist. Well, according to DJ Swearinger, he doesn't. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> let's see if we can find that and play that right now again man god damn we're in a high school field doesn't mean you have to play like high school let's go some of the that happened yesterday uh, you wouldn't expect on the first day of rookie otas to be honest with you we had three drop snaps uh and a couple other things that uh were my fault that is mickey mouse horse football right there and we all had our hand everybody had their hand in it and it can't happen for us to be as good as we want to be, ever. I can handle a drop every now and then. I can handle a, a guy beating you with a good pass rush move. I can handle certain things, but I can't handle mental ups time and time again. Andy's been a quarterback here for three years and hasn't had one drop snap. Not one. We had three in one day. Concentration poise. You got to have it on every snap in this game. Otherwise, you're going to get your ass beat time and time again. You're going to be 18th ranked in offense. You're going to be 9-7 and seven or 8-8, eight and eight, and you're going to be watching the playoffs at home every year. Yesterday, we took a major step backwards, and now today, we got to take two steps forward. You got to have great concentration, great attention to detail, not just on Sundays, on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. If you want to muddle around at 500, come out here around and up. But if you want to be great, you got to set your standards high and you got to come out and go after it every day. That was oh even better gosh. than I, I remembered. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Boy, he had it down on what it took to be a 500 or less coach. What happened to that guy? Where did that guy go? Uh, you know what? He will be entertaining on Hard Knocks. If they if the Redskins are that team, it's going to be a lot of Jay Gruden. A lot of Jay Gruden. It'll be a lot of, um, you know, it'll probably be a ton of Jay Gruden, a ton of Josh Norman. Um, you'll probably get some Minuski. You'll get some uh, some Rob Ryan, oh, definitely. Uh, Ryan, uh, Jim Tom Sula. Tom Sula, for sure. You'll get a lot of that. Well, Haskins yeah. will be the star, though. Haskins will be a big part of it in you know, the meetings. And Doug Williams is going to be, you know, f- as the team lead, you know, yeah. the organization leader. He's going to be all Bruce over the place. Allen? I, I predicted when we talked about this, either with you or without you, two weeks ago or a week ago or whenever it was, that you would not see Snyder, other than maybe for some brief conversation with Bruce well, what about, about Bruce? how things are going, and we're going to see little of Bruce. I say so, because I, I, I don't think he wants it. I don't think he wants it either. Um, yeah. I don't think, I, personally, I don't think what we heard from Jay Gruden yesterday, I don't yesterday, think Jay wants, it. Jay wants no. it either. No, if we're forced to do it, that was his embrace of it. Um, and he's, but, but again, all I could think of was, what happened to the guy who was raising hell the last time we saw him on Hard Knocks? I know. That's not the coach DJ Swearinger talked about before he got kicked out of Redskins Park. No. Uh, you know, Jay's love is offensive football. You know, I, I wonder whether or not he was just happier being an OC. I mean, of course, the money isn't nearly as, no. as good. Um, God, I, I hope the Redskins get it. So do I. I really hope it's they get it. It's going to happen. They're not picking the Raiders. Because the Raiders are basically guaranteed to be available next year. 
They're not firing when they John go to Gruden. Vegas. Yeah, they're going to Vegas. They're not going to fire John Gruden. They're not going to make the playoffs. They're going to definitely be available next year. They're going to hold off till next year for the Raiders. I could see that. Uh, that makes sense. Um, but Antonio Brown's first training camp with John yeah. Gruden would be. You know, would be something that I think more NFL fans would be interested yeah, in. I mean, Look, the, the, the Raiders a- may be too much of a train wreck to to ignore. Yeah, but see the the. the Look, if you're HBO, what's going to get a bigger audience? The Raiders are going to. The Redskins are irrelevant yeah. to the rest the Raiders, of the league. The Raiders will get a bigger audience. I mean, Dwayne audience. Haskins is a a big storyline for yeah. the preseason, but nothing compared to teams that are good or perceived good or even other teams that are bad like the Raiders. The yeah. Raiders have a lot going on. Um I would love it to be the Redskins. By the way, one other thing and I listened to the whole Jay Gruden press conference following the OTA day yesterday. It's really what I um what I look forward to is just hearing him to see if he gets excited about anything or he, you know, a true honest moment about somebody's development comes out. The one thing that he said and I won't play the bite, I'll just paraphrase it. He was very excited about the wide receiving core. Oh my gosh. I know. I mean, he listed Every able-bodied wide receiver they have, so you, and every una- disabled, you heard it too. Body wide receiver they had. He went through all of them. Well, he is always very good at listing any. If somebody asks about a position, he's going to give you everybody that is under contract and on the field, and those that aren't or that that just got released, you know, and or maybe just coming in. Um, uh, he even included Brian Quick. He included Brian Quick. He yes. didn't forget Brian Brian Quick. Um, but the one player that he singled out more than any other was Josh Doxson. You know, he he thinks that Josh is going to have a big year. He's hopeful that he's going to have a big year, and he says that he's always been a supporter and he really likes Josh a lot. Obviously, this has to be the year for Doxson. Well, yeah, you know, I don't remember him being so supportive. At the end of that first season, no, you're where, right. he, where he complained about nope. having to draft a wide receiver who couldn't get on well, the field. And a guard. Yeah. <laughs> and a guard who turns <laughs> out to be I don't remember that really being good. so supportive. Um, but I, I found that that was interesting that, you know, he specifically said, I've been a big supporter of Josh's and he has very high hopes and he likes how Josh hasn't missed a workout, hasn't missed a team meeting. Um, you know, maybe it's. Look, what we talked about when it came to Josh's first year is a lack of maturity, professional maturity. You know, he's a young guy, and you know there were some rumblings about how he, you know, missed home um, back in Texas, and he's now entering his fourth season. And you know, one of the things you get to when you get to your fourth season is you become, you know, uh, you be- you become pretty enamored with the paycheck that you get you know, during the regular season that you get every week. And for him to get another one, he's got to play well. Yeah. Because somebody will take a shot on him next year. But he's got a chance in this contract year with the Redskins not having picked up his option. If he goes out and has a huge year, 90 catches, you know, uh, 12 touchdowns, something big, like a massive breakout year, he's going to get money next year on the free agent market. He will. Because he does have talent. He absolutely does have talent. Well, you like you've liked. I've the always guy. liked him. I know, yeah, so I know. you're a little bit clouded there. Uh, quick word about uh, Window Nation. Window Nation right now wants you to fire up that grill and take advantage of their summer savings. Right now, buy one get one free. It's Window Nation's absolute best offer. It's back and just for two more days. Actually, I think they're going to extend it uh, beyond the next two days. But get in there quickly because right now. 
it's your chance to get Hershey Park tickets as well. More on that in a moment. Buy one window, get the second free. Buy two, get two free. Buy four, get four free. There is no limit. Plus, you'll get 0% interest for five full years. But there's more to this deal. If you call today, you get that free in-home quote. I've mentioned that before. Window Nation will take good care of you. Mention my name. Mention that you hear us talk about Harley and Aaron and Eric and all the people at Window Nation all the time. They'll somebody they'll send somebody out to your home within 24 hours, and they'll come out any day of the week, by the way, uh, and you get a free in-home quote, and you'll get a pair of tickets to Hershey Park while supplies last. Um, they come come out as as mentioned, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. The price quote they give you is not ex- is not estimated pricing; it's exact pricing. It's backed by Window Nation's A plus Better Business Bureau rating. You're guaranteed the best value, or they'll pay you two hundred and fifty dollars. You've got to act fast. This savings opportunity ends May thirty first. Call today. Buy one window, get one free. There is no limit. Plus, get 0% interest for five full years and bonus tickets to Hershey Park. 86690Nation. That's 86690Nation or windownation.com. Uh, Tim Legler uh, joined me. Uh, had to record him earlier this morning before Tommy got in. Um, here is my interview with Tim Legler about the NBA Finals. All right, let's bring in Tim Legler uh, to the show. The NBA Finals start tonight. By the way, the updated uh, line is, at least according to my site, Toronto's back to being a one-point favorite in Game 1, even though they are a significant series underdog, um, which is interesting. But um, everybody knows this, that I I love talking basketball with Tim Legler more than anybody, and I certainly wanted to get you on before these finals started. And before we get to the finals I want to hear you describe what Kawhi Leonard has done in the postseason so far. Um, I put it on a very short list of the best postseason runs by an individual that I've seen in, honestly, my lifetime. So I think about, you know, the the, the NBA in the 80s, high school, college, that was for me. That's when I started to fall in love with the NBA. So, but, you know, was I, was I, studying it and can I remember the extent to which some guys had individual postseason runs during that time that's that's too long ago so I'm thinking more like once I got out of college and I played in the NBA in the 90s and then in the 18 years I've been in ESPN I think it goes on a very short list and I think it's actually distinguishable from some others so the list I would put it on would be probably a couple different ones for Michael Jordan during his six I'd put Dirk Nowitzki in that category and probably Dwayne Wade in 2006. See, I think it's even different than LeBron's runs in Miami or Cleveland. I think it's different than a Shaq and the three that he had in a row when he was unbelievably dominant with the Lakers. I think it's different than Kobe. And one of the reasons I think it's different than guys like that, uh, and I put it more with Dirk and Dwayne Wade in 06, because they don't have Hall of Famers that are playing at a Hall of Fame level in their prime next to him. Now, you know, you look at you look at Dirk Nowitzki, now, okay, Jason Kidd was on that team, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. But I'm talking about playing at their peak, at their prime, as Hall of Fame, you know, production every night. LeBron had that even with Dwayne Wade and Kyrie Irving. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki didn't really have that in Dallas. Dwayne Wade didn't have it in 06. And, and Kawhi certainly doesn't have it on this team. So... To be this consistently great night after night after night and you don't have 
another guy on that level on your roster. That's why I put it at, on that very short list of, of the great postseason runs by an individual we've ever seen. I want to ask you more about that in a moment. But the, the one, um, and I think I mentioned this when I was talking about Kawhi the other day, LeBron's performance individually in that first 2015 finals against Golden State when he had Shumpert and Della Vidova and Mike Miller and Timothy Mozgov, that, that team around him, I think that may have been LeBron's greatest finals performance, even though they lost the series. It was amazing that with that group they won two games in those NBA finals. Yeah, that's probably a good call. I think, you know, you look at LeBron and going to eight straight, you know, you're trying to pick a part, which was better than the rest. And so you typically tend to think about the ones that he won. Um, But you might be right about that, to take that team and drag that team. Um, And, and, you know, he was playing actually in a way during that time that I don't think LeBron James was ever really comfortable playing where he had to be that dominant scorer that had takeover series by playing in the post and backing guys down and controlling possessions for long periods of time, just doing anything he could to try to figure out a way to eke out a basket, you know, in a given possession when you had an entire defense gear to stop him. So I think that's probably a good example as well. I think the other thing about those finals, and I remember those, is that he was playing freely. I mean, we had seen LeBron in so many instances when he felt the pressure, and he had gotten through, obviously, with Miami, um, but there was no pressure. No one was expecting them um, to do anything uh, in that series, and he was great. But back to Kawhi for, for a moment. Um, it's different the way he dominates games, um, and it's quiet sometimes, and it's patient. Like, Talk about the, the style in which Kawhi Leonard dominates a basketball game. Yeah, I think patience is a great word because I think you watch him sometimes and, you know, he you can just tell that he's just sort of picking his spots and there's no panic in him that it, you know, he's going to be able to do it when he needs to. Um the difference to me the biggest difference in the way that he does it as opposed to the most modern stars, he does it from a different area of the floor. Like, you know, you think about Kawhi Leonard, that's why I thought the Milwaukee Toronto series was fascinating because you had these two star players that beat you up completely differently than what the the other stars in these other series look like. Um, and, and you know, with Giannis, it's obviously at the rim and with inside six feet, and I call him a center with a handle because that's really how he scores, and he beats you up physically at the rim, but he starts with a live dribble 30 feet out. So it's it's a weird combination. Kawhi, it's that middle area of the floor and his ability to get to a spot and he uses – I think he might be – if he's not the strongest guy in the NBA, he's in the top five. And, you know, his shoulders, his arms, his his core, his balance, he is able to take you to a spot on the floor, even against elite defenders, big guys, guys with great length, and he nudges you with that shoulder just enough that it, it rocks you and jolts you back. And then he stops at that nanosecond before you know he's going to – so now, even though it looks like you're watching on TV live, it's a fairly decent contest, it's really not. In his mind, it's completely free because he knows he's getting the shot off. And now the part that, to me, has blown me away about him is he's perfected the skill of the shot-making on his jump shot to a level that I never thought was possible for Kawhi Leonard when I first saw him in the league his first few years. Like, a guy that was mainly an athlete, slasher, played along the baseline, would cut, good in transition, 
Now he's got this skill with this mid-range jump shot that's mind-blowing. I think you put it on a level probably with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant as the best mid-range contested jump shooters I've ever seen. And that's how he beats you, so it's different than what you're going to get with Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and, and the areas of the floor they're going to operate in. Um, Kawhi wants to get to a different place on the floor. He's capable of making threes, obviously, but it to me it separates him as his ability to knock down a 12- to 19-foot shot um, with guys hanging on him. And, and it's it's so automatic. He looks machine-like at times, particularly in that Philly series. And I went down to two of those games in Philly, and when you see it in person, it's even more amazing to watch a guy operate that looks like you can't speed him up at all, but yet you can't stop him. It's a very strange combination. You know, the other thing, and you're, you're a shooter, he has a flat shot. Like it's, yes, there, he does. There's not a ton of arc to it, but it's still so pure and so right. But there's less, as you know, being a shooter, there's less margin um, for error when you have a flatter stroke like he has. Yeah, it's simple math, right? I mean, it's it's, it's angles and the ball coming in at a different angle, uh, you know, th- than his gives you a better chance to go in typically. And most great shooters, you're going to have significantly higher arc and coming in at a, at a much steeper angle toward the rim than his shot. So that's even a, a higher level of precision in my mind. And then, you like, I think about now a comparison, like the other extreme – where now the margin for error again shrinks is with Dirk. Because when you shoot it that high and you think about the actual distance that the ball is traveling from fingertip to rim, <laughs> like his yeah. ball's traveling 8 to 12 feet more than somebody else that takes the shot from the same exact place, uh, that's going to be harder to control. So the level of perfection, it's almost like a genius involved in it, that, that it takes and the amount of repetition it takes to become that automatic is something that I think everybody should really just sit back and admire. But you teach a much more uh, significant arc to a to a shot than the no question. Yeah. It, and there's a look, it's, it lands, he would come in yeah. like if if a kid if a kid came into my to like my, my, say my camp or I did individual training and he was 16 years old and he had a shot with that exact arc, uh, I would I would break it down for him and I would say, you know, there's a correlation between up and out. You have to generate the ball going in an upward direction while it's still in your hand. And I, I, I teach it that you try to get someone to focus on the point of their elbow. And you're taking that elbow and you're driving that elbow upward. It, it comes out of your, away from your body in almost like a banana-shaped arc where like you were going to hit someone under the chin with your elbow. That's where the point of your elbow has to drive up toward the ceiling before your forearm even comes in an outward motion. So there's an up-out motion, and there's a perfect correlation on a perfect shot. I would tell a guy like that, you don't have near enough upward motion right. with your elbow and your, and your arm prior to the ball coming out from your body. But for him, it works. And, uh, again, it's just a testament to repetition, and that's all, that's all you can say about it. He was making shots in the Philly series with guys – like all over him, and Ben Simmons is, is I would consider like a top tier defender, six foot ten, also athletic, quick, long reach, and Kawhi Leonard was making shots against him like it was nothing, and that ball was going straight through, yeah. where it would just hit the back of the rim and come straight down, right. and drop on the floor, like, and you go, 
that was an absolutely perfect shot, and he's doing it with very little arc on it. It's 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 just it's just one of those guys, man. You know, he's, it, he's a freak in in a lot of ways, and and now he's even become a freak with how he shoots the ball. Because you're 100 percent right, it doesn't look like other pure shooter shots in terms of his arc. Well, I, uh, you know, and I don't know how many people who are listening right now are interested in this, but I don't care because I am and you are. But um, I had Phil Chenier on the show yesterday, you know, an all-time great pure shooter. And I mentioned to him that, you know, over the years, it's been my observation that guys with massive hands tend to be a little bit more inconsistent as shooters, you know, it's like me taking a, a women's ball and, you know, or a, a middle school basketball and playing in one of my, you know, weekly or, or bi-weekly, you know, old man pickup games. It would feel weird. It shoots differently. Um, and and the consistency's not there. And, and Kawhi's got massive hands. So I'm wondering if perhaps there's some combination of big hands, less arc that makes more sense. I don't know. I don't know about that, but I do know that I I think the the big hands argument to me is overrated because I think it comes down to repetition more than anything, and most of those guys haven't put the time in and the work in, period. Because right. yeah, I'll give you an example. You just brought up the women's ball conversation. Now, I have giant hands. My hands are even, are even much bigger than a guy like 6'5's hands should be. I I actually got to the point where I felt like I could shoot a women's ball and I could make, you know, I think even on my 50th birthday, I, I went to a gym and I had a women's ball and I wanted to see how long it would take me to make 53s. And I went 50 for 54 <laughs> wow. from the three-point and, and the reason that that, that How much warm-up did you get? How many warm-ups did you get until you got acclimated to it? I would say about 10 shots. Okay. I, I, the reason though that that is so became so comfortable for me, simply because I have two kids, both played, both played high school, college, AAU basketball. My daughter was more of the gym rat in terms of wanting to go just shoot with me. My son didn't want to do that as much with me. Okay, so when I would go to the gym, you know, ten to one ratio, my daughter to my son being in the gym with her alone. Well, I would take two women's balls with me when I would go work out with her. So then I would do all the same drills as her. So over a period of time, I found myself shooting with a women's ball way more than a men's ball. So even though I have these massive hands, it became very comfortable to me just because of the repetition factor. So that's, to me, when I look at Kawhi, you know, his hands wrapped damn near halfway around the ball. It's the same thing with Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like, that guy hasn't put enough time in. And, and making that a priority, right. and he's going to have to now because he was exposed in this last series to such an extent that if that doesn't put cold water on your face and say, I've got to address this because this is not going to be good enough to get my team through. Um, Kawhi Leonard did that at some point in his career, early in his career, made it a priority. So regardless of the hand size, it's it's repetition and muscle memory and getting comfortable that you can make any shot from anywhere on the floor at any time. And that's solely done because you want to outwork other people. Fair enough. Um, on Giannis, and then we'll get to the finals, which start tonight. Yep. Um, uh, he was tight early in that Boston series, uh, and I thought he was extremely tight in Game 6 the other night, especially after he airballed that four- or five-foot floater and missed it by about two-and-a-half or three feet. It looked like he really, I thought, got tight at the end. And I know 
the defense had something to do with it. The lack of any creativity offensively um, uh, from the bench may have had something to do with it. What did you see? Yeah, all those things, and I, I think I will echo what you just said. So <clears throat> I go back to the Boston series. Uh, he, not only he, the entire team was paralyzed in game one against Boston. And I think they were feeding off of their star player looking that way. He was actually exactly the same way through about the first 18 minutes of game two. I don't know if yes, you remember this, I do. but they were down double digits. Right. And you know what changed that entire series? Chris Middleton Started went off shots. in the second quarter. So now you go into halftime of game two, and it's tied. And I think for the first time in a game and a half, Giannis Antetokounmpo took a breath and relaxed for a second because he was like, okay, somebody else showed up finally. So now he just seemed like he took pressure off himself, came out, he was great in the third quarter, he was great the rest of that series to close out Boston. You get to the conference finals, and what I saw was a guy that played tight at times because – this team came up with this commitment to putting five guys in the lane, one at the top, two at the elbows, two at the block. He was basically playing against a 1-2-2 two, two zone. And the lack of creativity to allow him to attack it from any other area on the floor except the top of the key, I thought was glaring. Yep. Because it was obvious to me, Kevin, he became more and more tight as the series went on because he's looking at this. The offense was designed for him just to do one thing, which is operate from the top. And he's looking at a loaded lane and saying to himself, I don't know how I'm supposed to physically beat this. And now that starts to create doubt in your mind. You try to do too much. He's tripping and falling. He's shooting air balls. He's running people over. He's turning the ball over at an alarming rate. All of these things that you go, wait a second, this guy's the MVP of the league. But But for me, this simple adjustment would have been to get him through at least this postseason. He's still going to have to address shooting the basketball in the the summer. Put him on the post. Well, that's one. There's another one, though. He didn't at any point, maybe a handful of times in the entire series. If you ISO him from the wing and you put a shooter in the strong side corner, okay, well, that defender is not likely to go be in Giannis Antetokounmpo's lap because that's a simple kick to the corner for a three. So when you can come in from the slot, you're you're taking at least one side of the help away from what he was seeing, which was whichever direction I go, there's someone waiting on me at the elbow. Well, take him over to the slot and let him operate that way so if he can drive into that slot toward the baseline, strong side shooter uh, defender's not leaving. So now at least you maybe be able to get to the rim in that one, you know, two strides, or or at least the first guy you're going to encounter is going to be at the rim. And I also think... That gives you clear vision to the other side of the floor. If they do want to run people over early and get there and try to meet you outside the lane, you have easy passes to the other side of the floor. But the fact that he just continually was trying to attack from the top, knowing that wherever I go off one dribble, there's someone's going to be in my lap because there's still another defender on that side of the floor that could get to that shooter. And I just thought it was such a simple offensive schematic adjustment that they never made. The other one's clearly putting him in the post more. Roll him in there. Like, come off a screen at the elbow, roll him into the post, throw him the ball deep, and let him, let him operate quickly or, or wait for the double team. They never did those things. It was kind of shocking 
to have this guy with these limitations, and they didn't address it by helping him out. Instead, it just snowballed and compounded because he became completely frustrated over his inability to beat this team physically because of the way they were loading up on him. And it's something now going into next season that we're all going to be watching. You know, you just reminded me, and uh, that that obviously seems like an adjustment that should have been made, but you reminded me of the other series. Uh, Throughout that series, as Golden State was hedging hard, you know, doubling, trapping Lillard off the ball screen, um, it's like I kept saying on this podcast over and over, why don't they use McCollum as the screener? Like, why not use another playmaker or, or shooter as the screener, and then that almost forces Golden State out of what they were doing, or if they continue, you've got the ball in McCollum's hands. They never really, you know, and, and I know, um, you know, Myers Leonard, you know, hit a bunch of shots off off the trap, you know, in, in game four, I think it was. But so many times, Tim, I think sometimes when teams decide to take a, the best player out of the game by trapping off ball screens, you've got to have another great offensive pl- player as the screener. Well, you definitely do. That's a good point. I think because what happens in that situation is even if you do want to trap Lillard still, what, well, then the guy that set the screen can pop back and catch the ball, exactly. and that's your best playmaker on the floor other than Lillard instead of – having guys like Harkless and Aminu and guys like this that you're not worried about at all. You could completely disregard or any of their bigs. So that is an adjustment. And sometimes, look, man, I watch these games, and you know know about my coaching aspirations, and you know how I watch the game like a coach. And I look at even some of the stuff that I have done over the course of my coaching lifetime – and, and just making adjustments for guys that I had that obviously aren't on the level of some of the guys we're talking about, but good players, guys that have become good college players. And I think just simple things to make it easier. Like that's your job as a coach, that you might not be ready for everything you're going to see going into a game or a series, but you sh- your mind should constantly be thinking about how can I make this easier on my best player because it, very few teams can survive if their best players are limited or inefficient. Like, it just does, you just can't survive that. And it was the same thing with the Portland Trailblazers and the same thing with the Milwaukee Bucks. And so now you have, now in Damian Lillard's case, I'm not looking at him saying, okay, he's got to add something to his game. He's a pretty complete offensive player. So for me, that's more offensive adjustment as a team. For Milwaukee, it's both. They've got to use him better, and he's got to add an ability to beat you if he sees that kind of defense by at least being a threat to make an 18-foot jump shot. I mean, the fact that he was that bottled up by looking at five red jerseys in the lane is shocking to think that he might still go on to win the MVP award because it's a regular season award, but he was exposed with his limitations to that extent. Look, you coach AAU kids and you're you're comparing them to NBA kids and and you're minimizing it. It's basketball's basketball. It doesn't matter. Like one of the things I've noticed over the years in the NBA when they legalize zone, even though you've got a defensive three second rule, which makes it you know not necessarily a college zone, is how many of these NBA coaches like forgot how to attack you know a two three zone or a three two zone where there's ball reversals and there's more passing and the ball's got to get to the middle of the floor or or the short corner and into the middle it's 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 still they're relying on on screening the top of the zone and and playing that way um over and over again so with respect to this series now golden state's a big favorite how does toronto pull it off how do they pull off an upset 
Oh, man. Well, obviously Kawhi Leonard's got to continue to play at the, basically the same level of efficiency. He's got to be great. I mean, he can't he can't all of a sudden have a couple of games in this series where he's just average or below average. It's, you know, so he's got to be he's got to be great. Um, I do think that Toronto's confident, which which you have to be against this team. They beat them twice in a regular season. They they do feel like they belong here and that they're going to give this team a competitive series and that they can win the series. So mentally, you've got to have that going in. I do think they have that. What's got to happen for them? You're going to have to get great nights, probably by at least two other guys in every game. Now, it doesn't always have to be the same guys. So it's not like you've got to say, okay, Siakam's got to give us 23 a night in this series to have a chance. No, but he might have to have a couple of 25 to 30-point games. You might, you're going to have to get um, – Kyle Lowry is going to have to shoot probably you know two or three games in this series. He's going to probably have to make five, six threes and have those kind of – Danny Green – is you know he's been who's been completely non-existent, and so this might be asking a lot to ask a guy to turn it around on the biggest stage in basketball. That might be a lot to ask, but I think you might need you know a seven made three game out of Danny Green in an unexpected moment to get you through a game. Like it's going to take Herculean efforts, I think, out of a couple guys a night. Uh, to help, uh, you know, Kawhi, who's going to have to do it every night. So I think from their perspective offensively, you're going to have to get that. Let's just not fool ourselves. You're going to have to get guys that are going to have to play at their highest level a couple of nights each in this series to have a chance. I think you also have to hope that Golden State's bench isn't as good as it was in the last round and a half because I did the numbers in the Portland series. I was blown away by it, so I went on SportsCenter and I said, i got to talk about this because no one's talking about it because Curry and was so good and Draymond Green was so good. We're not talking about this other component, which is a bunch of dudes named McKinney and Bell and Jarepko and Cook and Looney. They shot 62% yeah. from the field. Okay, they, they, they turned the ball over, Kevin, 10 times in 378 minutes combined in that series. They, they scored 32 points a game. You've got to hope to God that doesn't happen if you're Toronto Raptors because there's no answer for them if those guys are going to be that good and shoot the ball at that rate and make those kind of decisions when they get the basketball. So, look, a lot's got to go right for them to win it. I think they'll be in games. The question is, can they close four times against the Golden State Warriors? I think that's going to be a little bit too much to ask. Yeah, I completely agree with you. In fact, if you if you go back and you look at Toronto's most impressive performances of this postseason, they were in games where Leonard got nineteen or twenty five or twenty seven, not not thirty, you know, five plus. And it was Lowry and Gasol and Powell and Van Vliet in particular who came up huge in the last series. And Ibaka played so well uh, in that last series. They've got to get that. I mean, I think if Leonard has to average thirty five in this series, they don't have a chance. Yeah, I agree, because I think if you're talking about a guy, if he's going to average that much, it means he's taken a boatload of shots, and, and I, it's going to be hard to imagine him being able to be as efficient as he's going to need to be um, to, to pull that off. He doesn't want to shoot the ball that much, so if he's forced to, I don't think that's a great sign for them. You know, he's going to, look, he's going to probably have to have, you know, if they, this thing goes seven games and they win the series, yeah, he's probably going to have to have three or four 30-point games. But, he, you know, to me, you're right. At, at night when he gets 25 and he goes, you know, 12 for 20, or say he goes, no, 9 for 17, and then he gets 
24 out of Lowry. He gets 22 out of Siakam. He gets 15 out of Ibaka. Like that to me is when, yeah, you've got balance throughout your roster that you have a legitimate shot to beat a team like Golden State because you're going to have to get to a certain number in this series. These aren't going to be 92 to 86 games. You're going to have to score enough to beat them, and that means other guys are going to have to play really well. And in some cases, I have confidence that'll happen. Like, you know, in the case of a, say, a Fred Van Vliet, like I'm convinced now he's going to play well. Kyle Lowry, I'm okay. yeah, he played played pretty well most of the last series. Like I'm okay, I'm confident now. I don't think it's going to be Kyle Lowry of old that we we expect him now to go one for eleven. It's I don't think you're going to see that. But the question is, what about guys like Siakam? You can't be like a you know you can't look right. like a a seismograph you know where he's up and down, up and down. He's got to be like solid to great. You know, if he has a couple of games where he has nine points or something, they don't have a chance. So it just I just think there are more guys that we don't know about on the Toronto Raptors and what this is going to look like than we do on the Golden State Warriors, where I feel very confident what kind of stat lines I can type in before the game starts and kind of what their rotation looks like and what the shots and offense look like. Toronto, it's a little bit different and harder to predict. Yeah, two two more things. Um, one, Golden State makes you work so hard on defense that it worries me that a lot of these games that Toronto won in the fourth quarter because they were facing Milwaukee's offense or you know Phillies, which you know is an active offense and they tried to get out on the break, but nothing compares to Golden State. And will they have enough juice in the fourth quarter to do what they've done in the fourth quarters of some of these games, especially Kawhi? Um, and uh, the other thing is. You know, Houston, for whatever you want to say about them and their iso ball offense, I thought that they physically beat up Golden State a little bit and wore them down a couple of times in that series. And I'm wondering if you think Toronto can do the same thing. They're going to have to because I look at this team, this Golden State run over the last five years, and I think back to what you just said. First of all, Houston – this is a team that gave them so much trouble the last two years because they do hold and grab yeah. and trip them and talk to them the entire time and after the whistle smack the ball out of their hand and like all of that stuff, right? That's just about we're making this an alley fight and that's the only chance you have to disrupt their rhythm. I look back to a series that the Golden State Warriors lost in the finals. And in, in their second year against Cleveland, they were up three-one. Now Draymond Green's suspension right. played into it, but that's that's not the that's not going to win you three games. That was one, and it turned the momentum. But how do you close the deal? You close the deal because they started beating up Steph Curry, right? And so there's no question that that is a priority. Now, will it be? Allowed, like, because not every game I watch is officiated the same way. Even at the NBA Finals level, there's inconsistency based on the crew and how they're going to call it that night. Toronto better one hope that they do have some freedom in that regard, and there's a little bit of leniency. And then two, they better come with that kind of mentality where a couple guys are carrying around brass knuckles and knuckles in their socks because you're going to have to hit those guys if you let them have freedom of movement. And, and run around and, and get into their rhythm and their motion and their body movement and ball movement the way they did against Portland, you have no shot. 
there is no doubt that when that when Golden State's looked mortal, it's been because Steph Curry's gotten beaten up physically, you know, and and really stretched physically. Where yep. you see you you see the fatigue. You saw it in the Houston series in the in the in the two games that they lost. Um, with respect to Durant, how much different do you feel about this series if Durant doesn't play versus him playing? And by the way, well, for, the think, pur- for the purposes of this, let's just say if he does play, he's totally healthy. Yeah, I think uh, for me, they win it either way. I think it, and I, I'm not one of those guys that's in the camp of they're better without Kevin Durant. Like you know, you hear a lot of that that nonsensical talk because of how well Curry plays and how they look. It's different. It's more fun. It's definitely more eye pleasing to any fan. The truth of the matter is they're dominant either way. It's just different. It looks different. It, it the possessions end up different. Right. The last you know eight seconds. One of my favorite touchscreens I've done this entire postseason was one where I was <clears throat> illustrating the difference between Kevin Durant in the second half of possessions when he's on the floor, like those last 10 seconds, and when he's not on the floor. And I took a play from the Clippers series, and I took a play from the Portland series. In the Clippers series, there was nine seconds left on the shot clock in a particular possession. Steph Curry had the ball at the top of the key. He pat and Kevin Durant, by the way, was like 38 feet out. Like he wasn't even engaged offensively because he knew this ball is just going to come to me and I'm going to go ISO. So that's exactly what happened. Curry threw it to him. And, and he wanted to, like, engage with Durant. Like, here, man, I want to set a ball screen. And Durant just waved him off. Like, no, I got it. So then what did Curry do? He just went and spotted up on the wing. Thompson was on the other wing. Two guys on the baseline. And he just went one-on-one against Patrick Beverly and shot a turnaround jumper at the elbow. Looked pretty good. He ended up missing the shot, but it was a perfectly clean, makeable shot. I went to compare that with nine seconds on the shot clock in the Portland series. Without Steph him. Curry is in the right corner. The ball was on the left wing. And what happened over the next nine seconds was him moving three passes, four different screens, (laughs) a ball reversal, a dribble handoff, a pump fake, and a made three. That's the difference without Kevin Durant. To me, it's much more difficult to mentally stay in possessions as long as you have to defensively when you play Golden State without him. Now, it could end up the same way with the ball going through the net because he's going to make shots. He's going to bail you out sometimes. But the level of concentration and preparation that you have to have in communication to to manage possessions all the way through and then all the way through 48 minutes is, is just, I think, exponentially higher when you play him, when you play that team without Kevin Durant on the floor, even though the result is going to end up potentially being the same because he's still going to do certain things you have no answer for. I just think the level of commitment defensively when he's not there is so much more difficult to maintain your concentration and not have a lapse um, where they just they, they beat you up like no team I've ever seen when you make a mistake. Friend of mine who's a coach said that you know, and I, I, for whatever reason, this conversation among coaches, and I think Gary Williams mentioned. Oh no, Patsos told me this. They were they were down in Puerto Rico. He was with a bunch of college coaches, and a lot of the college coaches just enjoyed watching Golden State much more without Durant than with him. But a friend of mine said, 
you know, when you're not playing the way they're playing now, your your defense is affected. One one of the best things about Golden State, def- their defensive numbers is really driven by their offense in many ways because they're making people work so hard defensively. With Durant, they don't. But my point was, Durant's a great defender that you're taking yeah. off the floor too. Although Iguodala's a great defender too, also. And my get my guess is that he starts on Leonard. Is that your guess? Yeah, I think so. And actually, their defensive personnel is probably one of the main reasons. I just don't know how Toronto's going to pull this off, even though I think it'll be competitive, because I don't think there's a team in the league that has more guys that fit the physical profile that can guard Kawhi straight up, if that's what you need. And you're not going to be running double teams at him I don't all think over so. the place. So you're going to play them straight up a lot, which means they're going to be switching, and then there's going to be you're handing them off to guys. Well, look at their personnel. I mean, you got you got Iguodala, right, who's six seven, strong, jacked, quick, athletic, and prides himself in it. You got Clay, who's an all league defender. You got Draymond Green, who's not as fleet of foot out on the perimeter, but you're not worried about that as much with Kawhi. You're more worried more about the physical strength component in the mid-range. So to put Draymond in there, who's an all-league defender. Then you've got Durant. If he makes an appearance in this series, that's 6'11", that can contest that shot as well as anybody. And even some of their some of their bigs that you might hand them off to, like a loony, does a respectable job. So I just think there are more guys that on a given possession – Steve Kerr is not losing any sleep over worrying about who Kawhi ends up getting on him because they have a stable of guys that are going to run through him in this series. And you're not looking to shut him down. You're just looking to make him less efficient and make him shoot you know, 42% from the field in some games rather than 55 and keep him off the line a little bit better than some of these other teams. And you got a great chance to beat them. And I think that's why you got to give the edge of Golden State. And I do think Iguodala gets them probably as much or more than anybody in this series, and Clay Thompson's right next to him. So interesting watching a winning culture like Golden State's and seeing, you know, a Jarebko and a Looney and even Quinn Cook a couple of times in the last series, and we've seen Livingston before. There's there's a confidence that these guys who don't play a lot of minutes have when they come in, and an aggressiveness like. There's just you don't see that in non-winning organizations. Like when they go to the bench, people can sit there and say, "Ah, you know, concerned if you get down to to Cook or or Bogut or Jarebko." Uh-uh. There's a confidence that those guys have in a winning culture that I don't know how teams, you know, whether it's New England or Golden State, you know, it's it just it's always there. No, there's a lot of truth in that. It breeds confidence. I think guys come in, they know there's a there's a there's a lot of margin for error. You individually, when you come in, so Quinn Cook can come in and jack a three the first time down the floor when he just checked in a game, because they know there's going to be runs made by that team that are going to overcome mistakes that have been made, missed shots that have been made. So you don't feel that you have to play perfectly. And it's amazing what that does to unleash the freedom in your mind. Because the truth of the matter is, Kevin, and you know this as well as anybody, every single dude that's got a uniform on in that league is capable of playing great. On any stage, they are. And but so the difference is what's going on from a culture standpoint and mentally and in your own personal situation with what you're feeling and the pressure you're putting on yourself and the freedom that you have that where you don't hear about some guys, right? Some guys aren't household names. Some guys don't get this opportunity 
Golden State, I feel like every role player, it was the same thing in San Antonio for years. Whatever cast of role players you threw out there, they still won. And guys played great and had big moments because your margin for error is greater because you know you're playing on a great team that ultimately is going to make runs that make up for whatever mistakes you have made. Yeah, I, I agree with that. All right, I got a couple more, then I'll let you run. I always t- yep. t- take you um, much longer than you probably have time for. But if Steph Curry plays well, really well, and the Warriors win, and he's the MVP, does it elevate him to a level legacy wise that he hasn't yet reached? I think so. I th- I'm saying I without Durant. Said, I'm saying without Durant. No, I know. Yeah. I said. I said. Um, I said a while back. Well, I guess right after Durant went down, I said if he pulls this off and they win this title and he and he goes back to you know pre Durant Steph like what he looks like and he k- carries this out throughout and they win the title and he's the finals MVP this might be his greatest accomplishment and think about what I'm saying because you're talking about the first time unanimous MVP of a league you're talking about a two-time MVP you're talking about somebody that already visually has given us something that I think is the closest thing at his peak to must-see TV to Michael Jordan as a basketball fan Think about all of these things. A 73-win team he was a part of. Think about all of these things he's done. And I think this would be his, his, his crown jewel if he's able to win it now after Durant steps away from this and he just goes right back to that mode after a two-plus-year break from it. And he, and he carries this team through. And they win a fight, including getting past their nemesis in Houston, team that people thought was going to take them out after Durant went down, sweeping the conference finals, and then beating a really good Toronto Raptors team with a guy having an all-time great playoff performance. Yeah, I think that's the crown jewel for Steph Curry. I think it, it, it takes it to a level now where you're going to start to hear things come out of people's mouths and where he ranks historically, not just, you know, we, he seems to always be lumped into shooters, greatest shooter we've ever seen. He's going to elevate it to a point where you start to put, think about, like, is this the greatest point guard we've ever seen? Like, you're going to start to hear that kind of talk if he pulls this off. It's already for me. He's the greatest combined shooter and ball handler in one body I've well, ever I throw, watched. I throw passer in there because I think they're the three. When I look at the three skill components to the game, which is pass, shoot, dribble, he might not be the greatest dribbler or passer ever, but he's definitely the greatest shooter. He might not be the greatest passer or dribbler, but – He's certainly high enough in the top five, probably as a ball handler, maybe we've ever seen. Passer, he's up there high enough that the combination of the three is the highest skill component uh, combination in any player ever. Yeah, there's no doubt. That's the way I feel. I I think the only player that I've ever thought of that, that has all of that stuff in one body um, but we never had a chance to see the, the length of, of his shooting ability because it just wasn't a thing then was Isaiah. Like Isaiah had the ball handling, passing, and the shooting ability, but, we, but I still think Curry's a, a notch above I him. actually would use a different name. Okay. The guy that I would say is closest would be Pete Maravich. That, I asked Shanir about that yesterday, and he said – he, he he basically said Maravich is close, but 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 didn't have the stroke that Curry has. He didn't, and even when you you know and you know look, the guy put up thirty six hundred points in college without a three point line. But he, you're right, it, it wasn't like Curry's. It wasn't that pure stroke, but the result was pretty similar for his you know his era yeah, no and the guys he was playing against. The ball ended up in the bottom of the net an awful lot. 
but then the 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 ball handling it probably not quite on Curry's level. The passing probably even better. I mean, I don't know that just, you know Pete Maravich might be the greatest passer ever, and he also had a flair to make it look even more dramatic uh, than than Curry does. But so you know we're coming up with some pretty good names. But I don't, I personally don't think you've ever seen that combination of those three things at a higher level in anybody than him. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, thanks for doing this as always. Really appreciate yep. it, and enjoy the finals. Will do, Calf. Talk to you soon, man. It's great having Tim Legler on the show. He's always so generous with his time, and it's much appreciated. Uh, It's great basketball analysis and talk. Um, Really appreciate Tim. Quick word about stamps.com. Nobody's really got much time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for the traffic, the parking, the lugging all your mail and packages in? It's a hassle. That's why you need stamps.com. Stamps.com is one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all of the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices or an online seller that ships out product or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. By the way, you save money with Stamps.com. Five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time. It saves you money. That's why 700,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com. Now, right now, my listeners get a special offer. That offer includes a four-week trial plus free postage, and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Kevin DC. That's K-E-V-I-N-D-C. That's Stamps.com, Kevin DC. All right, let's bring in Scott Van Pelt um, for his weekly visit. Uh, you and I were talking yesterday um, about the Lakers and Magic, and I, and I wanted you to make the point that you made to me on the phone yesterday, which I thought was a very interesting one. But the context for sort of what you're going to describe is the story uh, on ESPN.com about the Lakers, about Magic Johnson, the accusations about Magic being lazy as a team executive, him not being around enough. Um, he vehemently denied that with Stephen A. Smith and Mike Wilbon on ESPN the other night and Doc Rivers. Um, and you made this point yesterday when we were talking about this. Just tell me what – tell everybody what you said to me yesterday about um, that that specific accusation about Magic and his reaction to it. That it seems like an insult, but it's actually like the cover for, for him. He should take it because if he if – he, if, if the accusation was incorrect – and it means he just was horrible at his job. That one, yes, because well, it's, it's true. It's because so if true. Lazy, it, because if you're lazy and you just kind of weren't showing up, you weren't, you really weren't punching the clock. You were just kind of hanging out, and you really weren't paying attention. Then that would be a far better explanation for what the Lakers were and weren't than if you were really grinding it out and thought, man, you know what we should do get Rondo Stevenson, JaVale McGee, and Michael Beasley. That's what we should surround surround LeBron James with. 
because if you were working hard and that's the best you could do, then you did a terrible job. It's interesting because, you know, when he vehemently denied that and, and, and Wilbon and Stephen A. and they were all saying, we've known you forever, you, you, you go after it hard, you call us at all hours of the night, um, it, it, there was no follow-up to, well, if you really did work your ass off, the results really do suck. And it yeah. really was a horrible job that he's done. I can't believe, Tommy and Scott, that this organization, which I would put in the top five in terms of brands in all of sports, certainly American sports, the Lakers are, have sunk to this level. Did you read the story? Oh, yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah. And, and Tommy and I are magic guys. I've always loved magic. Scott, you know that. I've loved mm-hmm. him. And I've been so disappointed about the way he left the Lakers, not telling Jeannie Buss, the way he did that first take interview, throwing Rob Palinka and others under the bus. And then this story, which really, if you believe it, and I don't know why I wouldn't, I felt like it, it potentially is true that he was, you know, a borderline abusive executive with his employees. Well, go ahead, Tommy. Well, I mean, I I have a whole different take on on the whole magic thing that this has opened up to me that nobody ever seems to agree with. But uh, I think that this, this really calls into question this narrative as magic as this brilliant, successful businessman i mean i I think you got to call in the i mean i think you've got a question who actually was really responsible for the magic johnson empire was it was it magic or was he just a figurehead because publicly everything he's touched turns to gold no no actually publicly from what business wise business wise but the other stuff the talk show was a disaster his coaching you know was 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 short-lived and a disaster and now this I mean, so I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not necessarily buying the narrative that Magic Johnson anymore was this brilliant businessman. I'm more inclined to believe that there were people behind the scenes that built the Magic Johnson empire because this does not seem like the kind of a practice of a guy who would of a basketball player whose whose first love is basketball who would build up a business outside the game. But again, nobody agrees with me on that. I mean, if you I, like, if if I managed to 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 be um, the guy at the at the at the you know the the, the big chair at the end of the table of, for a six hundred million dollar empire, and I just had smart people that helped me get there, I'd be fine with that. I know. I'd be fine. I'd be and that's fine. fine. That's fine. That's that's yeah, exactly. that's absolutely fine. Exactly. Put some ahead of most I, athletes, most ex athletes. Yeah. I, <laughs> But I, I look at the I look more just at like why the coaching or why the GM stuff didn't work out. And I mean, this is this a conversation we've had forever about do great players make great coaches? And in most cases, they don't because they can never relate to the guys from the middle of the bench on down. Well, the guys that are the twelfth man typically make the better coach because they can relate to everybody on the team and they can understand that the star is the star. I, I think. The big picture here is that the Lakers are a dysfunctional mess, and I made the point on the show the other night that they're like the house on your neighborhood that was always the nicest house, and you find out that this dysfunctional family lived inside, and it's like an episode of Hoarders, and the entire <laughs> thing is just is a catastrophe on the inside. I mean, you just got to burn the whole thing down and start over, um, because you have an aging star in LeBron. I assume they'll get somebody in the offseason, because to your point, Kevin, the brand of the Lakers is the brand, but like... What do we mean right now? 
I mean, you're six years removed from making the playoffs. You, you have an aging superstar who's going to want to control kind of everything in his orbit. And I just don't know how appealing that is to people right now. Well, it also seems like you have a very indecisive and um, deferential owner um, in, in Los Angeles as well, which, which is a problem. And it's a family more than any other NBA team. It appears to be more of a family business with buses all over the place yeah. in the organization. Mm-hmm. With respect to though what, what you said, Tommy, I, I don't know that any of this would change my view. I don't know that I had a view on Magic's involvement or lack of, but to me it really doesn't matter. Magic would be on a long list of big-named people who have used their name and their brand to launch huge businesses, you know, with other people running them. Um, and I uh, maybe you're speaking to that Magic's always gotten credit as being the genius business person behind That's the, more what I'm okay. speaking to. And I, and I don't know that I knew that or e- even thought about it that much. But um, I, I, and, and I don't want to make it out to be that you know, magic by, by through reading this story is like an abusive executive either. I mean, you know, it's very possible that the employees, you know, perceive something that really wasn't that, um, over the top. I don't know that either, but it, this piece was unflattering to an unbelievable level of, of, of magic more than anything else. Um, it, the well, organization, I, I, yes, but but the big takeaway for me is that this guy, Matt, like there's magic, and then as somebody said, an anonymous, you know, uh, employee, there's magic, and then there's Irvin, and they're complete two totally different people, and I don't think I ever well, thought but, of magic that way. No, yeah, I, I, maybe not, but that's because you're you grew up idolizing the basketball player that smiled his way to you know, a lot of endorsements and who worked his way to a lot of titles. But it wouldn't surprise me that, that when the, the red light's not on and you're behind closed doors and you're trying to restore sort of the glamour, to, uh, the shine to a glamorous franchise, that you'd be hard on people. I mean, I just wonder how much as people can't really take. I mean, this is like the Izzo thing. Like how many people can't tough, take tough coaching? Who right, knows? Right. Um, you know, I, I don't. If, if your job is to get the to get the the car for the the draft prospect and you screw it up, well then don't screw it up. Don't screw that up next time. That that was one of the anecdotes. Now I'm, I'm not suggesting you should be so uh, uh, verbally aggressive in your in your dressing down of the employee that you need to take anxiety meds, which the uh, article implies. Yeah, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Car. I'm with you on that. I'm totally with you on that. We, yeah, we tend to agree on these things that, that that people tend to be too hypersensitive, and sometimes th- these stories exaggerate uh, the truth as well. But the the reason that if Michael Jordan had if this story were about Michael Jordan and his you know running of the Chicago Bulls, it would have been much less surprising to me than Magic because we never thought of Magic as a player, as a hard ass with his teammates. He, right. It was. It was or Jordan. Uh, that's always been his mo. Exactly. Right. I got it. Um, all right. The NBA Finals start tonight. Uh, does it have? Uh, I, I'm very excited about it. D- does it have as much juice for you? Yes, it does because I have no idea. Um, you know how much of a buyer of Milwaukee I was. Uh, yep. They didn't lose three games in a row all year. Then they lost four in a row. Kawhi Leonard is an absolute killer, and. I'm really just is how much momentum they really have, um, how much of that they can take into a, a series where they have home court, and I'm 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 very very intrigued by that. Uh, Kawhi is 
on the short, short, short list of best players in the game. So what's what's he capable of doing with this group against a team who's been here five straight times and potentially gets Durant back? Uh, so yeah, I'm really, really interested in, in what happens here, and I'm and I'm I like Golden State, but I'm scratching my head a little bit just over the home court and that that line in the first game. It's yeah. just like, huh, where are we with all this? I don't know. Yeah, we were talking about how that doesn't add up. Uh, exactly. You know, it, it, it just doesn't make sense because if if Toronto would be the favorite in the first game and they have home court advantage already, they would seem to be the prohibitive favorite in the series. <laughs> well, not prohibitive. But they're a prohibitive underdog. Yes. Yeah. It's weird. Um, By the way, and I haven't done this yet, but I'll do it with you. I mean, I, I like Golden State for the series. I do. And I just I can't see how Toronto can win four of seven against this particular team and how they're going to guard them, et cetera. But I love Toronto tonight. Like, t- tonight is a smell test special. That line's going up. They're minus one, one and a half now, and the public's on Golden State. The only thing I can think of is maybe the Vegas likes Toronto tonight because of the super long layoff for Golden State. I don't know. Like you, you think it'll be like the Boston uh, Bruins' first period the other night, where they were a complete disaster, and then they, then the light came on and they came roaring back to win Game One. Of course, last night the Blues won Game Two. That was actually a lot of fun to watch if you saw that. But that's I don't know. Overtime. Maybe that's maybe they're yeah. Maybe they're building that in. I don't know. I I, I don't. Maybe they're just like you know what Twilight's freaking killer man. Like maybe maybe they just they maybe they watch the uh, the way that guy imposed will. I mean that's a such a cliche but i mean that's what he did uh in that series you know you know will we i'm trying i've been trying to rack my brain sitting here right now uh just trying to think of one of one nba title that was basically achieved on the shoulders of one player dirk recently dirk yeah yeah i mean there were a couple of players that were huge in that series tyson chandler being one of them terry um, but uh, but you're right, Dirk. Dirk would be one. I mean, even LeBron, uh, when he won, he won with Kyrie Irving. You know. Yes. So well, I, mean, I, I mentioned to Leg. I had Legler on, on the show today, and I and we were trying to come up with comparable um, performances. And you know, the 2015 NBA Finals that Cleveland lost, but LeBron had. I think one of the greatest individual performances I've ever seen from him or anybody when he was playing with guys like Shumpert and Mozgov yeah. and 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 Delavadova and they won two games in that series. Um, that was that was amazing, but they didn't win it. But there's there's not it, if there's a list, it's a very short list of guys who of superstar players who carried their their team to an NBA championship pretty much uh, on their own. But I think if we're if we're comparing rosters here, I mean, you know, Gasol has been an all star. Yes. Pascal Siakam has the has the look of a guy who's going to be an all star. Kyle Lowry has been an all star. Like we're not talking about a collection of bums. That's we're true. talking about a collection of we're talking about a collection of guys who who were not able to when it was DeRozan with the group get over the hump. And that was primarily because the LeBron James teams you were just talking about stood in their way. So I, I don't look at the Raptors as, as being like like Sanford and Son, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> but the junk. I pulled off the junk heap collection by any means. I just do think that Kawhi is spectacular, and it makes me even more bummed out that he just you know kind of 
capped out on San Antonio and, and left that the way he did. But, I mean, whatever. Back now, we're reminded of just what kind of level we're talking about with him. Your phone just sort of faded out at the very end of that answer. I said Kawhi's back, and we're reminded how good he is. No, those are those are great points. I mean, Toronto's supporting cast. I mean, Serge Ibaka's been huge in this series. He's played um, in an NBA yeah, yeah, Finals. I didn't say his name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and I in talking to Legler earlier, you know, there's no doubt that I, I believe this, and, and he agreed that this can't be a series where Kawhi's got to average 35. He, he's got to get the help that he got in the game in which they played their best. They won a couple of games with Kawhi carrying them, but their best games were when Lowry played well, when Gasol played well, when Powell and Van Vliet and Ibaka played well. Um, They're going to need that. Um, On Durant, you know, Chris Broussard, we didn't talk about this last week because I think it's happened since last week, but Chris Broussard had that comment where, you know, this is Kevin Durant's worst nightmare come true. And then Durant had that press conference where, you know, essentially the reporter asked him how he felt about the way they were playing. And he said, you mean we, what do you make of all that? What's your reaction to him and all of that? He's fascinating. And I think I've said that, I think with you here, if not, I'll say it now. I mean, he's just the most, um, I think he's the, in, a, in an era where, where players' antennas are up more than ever before and who participate more in the conversation around themselves um, and the, the beefs and the squabbles, whatever, he, more than anyone else, is, is in the center of that. And the why is what makes it fascinating. Like, well, if you're him, why? Who cares, right? I don't know. He, only he could answer that. But he definitely seems to pay attention to maybe his boredom, especially with, with, you know, sitting out, being unable to play. You just, I wonder what people are saying. And then I think, look, I'm certainly guilty of this myself. You see somebody say something that you think, well, that's friggin' dumb. Well, that's not true. And so you just, you fire back just because it doesn't ring true to you. But then the next thing you know, everyone's paying attention to the fact that you're engaged in a back and forth with somebody, whether it's Bruce Sard or whomever. Um, this is who Durant is. This is not a secret. It's well known that that's kind of where he, he traffics in this. And if that's what he wants to do, that's okay. I don't, it certainly hasn't harmed his ability to be great when he plays. Um, I just, I think what would be fascinating is sort of why when you reach the level he is, like a two-time finals MVP, you'd give one, like, who gives a shit what Broussard says? Right. And I don't mean him, I don't mean Broussard specifically. I mean, who gives a shit what any of us say? Really? It's just, I mean, you're you. You know, at the end of today and at the first of tomorrow, you win because you're you. But what it reveals is it, it actually validates what uh, Broussard said because if Durant is so sensitive, you know the conversation if the Warriors win without Kevin Durant walking on the court will be, well, they didn't need him. And that right. for a guy who's sensitive, that's a horrible conversation to have to put up but, with. But, Tommy, they won before he got there. I, I agree. Mean, I the, agree. The, right. so, 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 I mean, I look at it like this. They won before you got there. You got there, and when they won, you were the best player, and that's proven by the MVP trophies you got, and then you helped them 
be what they were, and then they won without you because Steph's one of the great players who we've seen, and Draymond Green was incredible, and Clay Thompson, you know, like they they, they were an All Star team before Kevin got there. So I, I just don't see how if they win without him, which they've done so far without him, that the last couple of games against Houston, uh, well, a game and a quarter, and then all four against Portland, like they, that's because they're really good. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, if, if they didn't just discover some mojo in his absence. They were good before they had him. Yeah, I don't but know. That, that, I did, I did. that's... How many great players can you say that about? Well, this... How many? They're the only one of them there's ever been. Yeah, this yeah. this this one this one is a he jumped on the bandwagon of a champion. He signs one year deals, which means there's a continued conversation about him, which he's brought on himself. And then on top of that, it's easy to hurt his feelings. I mean that that's basically Kevin Durant without mentioning also, which you have to do. He is a great player, an all time great player. But he's brought a lot of this on himself, and I don't think that somebody who is that sensitive and whose feelings get hurt so easily ever realizes that. Well, that's true. But I mean, like I, I this this era of guy is you know whether it's Kyrie who just seems to find miserable like the the the, the misery out of like. You'd have to work at it, I would think, to find <laughs> to find things to be pumped out about if you're if you're you know in your twenties and you're making you know twenty something million on the court and who knows what off it and you're bumped out like it's like wow and I, I look everybody's got their own problems and and you know money doesn't fix them all I just think if if you're not happy in those situations I just don't know like where do you think you're going to find the happy I don't know where it lives. Um, who would be better on hard knocks, Raiders or Redskins right now? Because it seems to be those two teams in the running for it. Who would you rather watch? I think think Raiders just because you've got the, you know, you have the more interesting Gruden brother, um, with all due respect. You have the Antonio Brown dynamic, um, where it just seems like you have the potential for volatility there. Um, I mean, I, look, the Reds, the Redskins have got their own issues. I mean, you know, you bring in the the rookie quarterback, obviously. That you know, it, it's always about storylines. Like, what, which which has the longer list of storylines? It feels to me like the Raiders is is lengthier. But and I just I did get a kick out of Jay like opening openly lobbying for them to go be with his right. brother's group. That was funny. Um, the uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think I asked you about this, but I just wanted your quick thoughts, and I don't think we've talked about it. What did you make of Jawan Howard? Uh, taking the Michigan job and Ed Cooley, did he turn down that job, or 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 was it never offered? Do you know? I I, you know, I never know with those. I mean, I believe they were having discussions whether the gig was offered or not, or whether he you know not used Michigan for leverage for. I mean, th- those things happen, right? You know, if, if if you're at Providence and they hear Michigan's calling, all of a sudden you're motivated to make it make it a uh, spicier offer. I don't know if Michigan was offered uh, to Cooley. What do I make of Howard? I think the list of guys that have gone back and it hasn't worked out for most recently, say Chris Mullen at St. John's, um, is, is there's lots of those guys. But you, what you have right now is Penny Hardaway absolutely killing it on the recruiting yes, trail for, um, yeah. for for Memphis. And, you know, you've got a guy in Juwan Howard that, that might be able to the recruiting up level at Michigan. But the point I made on the show uh, last week, Kevin, was, you know, you had Jalen Rose saying, well, we haven't got McDonald's All-Americans, you know, under Beeline. Um, 
all right, well, you've been to two, you know, two trips to the finals in the last seven years. That's more than Duke and that's more than Kentucky. And they get the, they get those guys. So I don't, I don't understand the, the, the credit. And I mean, I mean, I don't know that Jalen was criticizing. Just, that's right. They haven't got five-star McDonald's All-American. So, okay, well, maybe Juwan can get them. Can he get to the finals twice in seven years? Beeline's the winningest coach in the history of the program. I think it, it's a really interesting thing that he inherits because he has cachet of being a five guy and that connects fans to a nostalgic time but he also is following the winningest coach that there has ever been so you, you the, it's on him to keep that level where it's been and i think that's a hell of a hard hill um, to climb i think so it's 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 fascinating i mean he's incredibly well respected by players and coaches around the league right. so you know people people all speak very very glowing terms of him i'm just you know, as a Maryland guy, uh, I'm just happy not to have to go against Beeline anymore. <laughs> yeah, me too, and, and and I'm just a big fan of Ed Cooley. I think he can really coach. Um, all I right. do too. I uh, do. By the way, Anthony Cowan came back. Um, CBS Sports yep. put out their updated, you know, early top 25, Maryland 6. Maryland's going to be a preseason top 10 team. Interesting. I mean, uh, and everyone's pointing out how, you know, Sticks coming back. was That was the main one, um, and then just the experience at Cal, and that's great. It's exciting. I, I hope people, I hope Maryland fans will take that opportunity to, to look at the at the glass as being however full it is rather than being pissed off about what it's not. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, all right, yep. thanks. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Appreciate Scott. It. Hey, boys. Right. Have a great day. Hey, congrats, Tommy. That's awesome news, man. Thank you, Scott. Scott, you congratulating Tommy on his Boxing Writer uh, Award, <laughs> um, which we talked about before we actually brought uh, Scott on. Um Real quick uh, mention of iTunes. If you're listening to us on iTunes, rate us, review us, um, and uh, also subscribe. It doesn't cost you uh, anything uh, to do that. Launch Workplaces in Bethesda. If you're looking for a new office, find out all you need to know uh, Need to know uh, at launchworkplaces.com. They've got other locations throughout the city. New fully furnished offices, conference rooms, co-working desks, launchworkplaces.com. Mention my name. You'll get a two-day uh, two free trial. Um, all right, lastly, uh, before we finish up this show, I do want to officially say I love the Raptors tonight, sort of smell test style. Um, Publix on Golden State. The line is now up to one, one and a half, Aaron, I'm seeing. Um, I haven't seen any twos yet, um, but if I see a two, I'm going (laughs) even bigger. Um, But I'm probably going to play this right when we get done today uh, and buy the half point and buy the Raptors, you know, minus one. But I love the Raptors tonight, but I like Golden State to win the series in six games. I have to agree with that. I, I like them to win it in six games too. I think the uh, f- the experience factor is going to play huge. Uh, plus, I think Golden State is, is a very smart team. They're not going to beat themselves. The Warriors are not going to beat themselves. You're going to have to beat the Warriors. That's going to be hard to do, like you said, four out of seven games. I actually would be much more surprised if this series went seven games than if it went four. I think there's a better chance that Golden State wins it in four or five than it goes seven. I'm saying six because I believe Toronto is going to win tonight based on the point spread. Right. So they already got one in my mind's eye, so maybe they'll get um, one more. You sound a little confused. I, you know what? 
again, I, I am a little bit confused. I am going to root hard for Toronto to win this series, even though I really enjoy watching Golden State play and Steph Curry play. Um, I made a recommendation yesterday without you on the show, and I was and I didn't. I don't know that I know the answer to this. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't. You might tell me that you already told me that you've watched this. Have you watched What's My Name? The Ali documentary on HBO. The no, two I have part... not yet. Okay, watch it. Okay. It, was, it was, I mean, how many documentaries yeah. have there been in, or movies on Ali? This one is excellent. So well done. And Tommy, I'll defer to you on this, but I believe that the, there is film and interviews that we've never heard before in this two-part show, which each part is about an hour, you know, a little bit more than an hour. And I watched it, I think on Monday, on Memorial Day, I watched it. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I love all the Ali stuff. But this one was excellent. Please watch it and let me know. There, like, there, there, were, there were interviews. It seems like almost every interview of Ali, any Ali fan is seen over and over again. But there were, there were interviews with Ali that I don't remember seeing before and footage of fights and fight, you know, pre-fight stuff that I don't think we had seen before. Well, that's good. I'm very excited about that. I just might want to say to you that uh, I have an idea for an Ollie documentary that's never been done yet. And I'm not going to reveal it here, but if anybody listening wants to finance that documentary, <laughs> just contact me. At my email at TomLavero at Yahoo.com. I'm serious. If you get, I have a documentary subject. Will you tell me when we're off the podcast? Yes. Okay. Yes, I will. Because maybe I can be a, a an advisor or a consultant <laughs> to the series if you get it funded. An associate producer. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, one of the best sports books I ever read was that um, Hauser book on Ali. Yeah. Which was phenomenal. And that's probably 25 years old now. Yes. Um, but still, you know, I mentioned this yesterday, still in my lifetime, probably yours as well, maybe the most well-known human being. Yeah, I, I think so. And what's interesting, I don't know how good this Ali documentary is. I'm sure it's great, but the, my favorite sports documentary of all time, my favorite documentary period is when we were Kings, the, uh, that, about Ali before his fight with George Ford. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Well, just all of the um, all of the footage from him in in Africa in Zaire, yeah. where it was amazing. That's the one sporting event. If people say if you could go back in time and cover one event, that would have been it. Well, what's amazing too, and you, you've seen it in all the Ali documentaries, but you see it even more so in this one, is just how quickly. And I know that the heavyweight champion of the world was that the heavyweight champion of the world. The world knew everywhere who the heavyweight champion was. But it was just amazing how early in his career, when he went somewhere, how pe people just went nuts over him. When he took a trip outside the country for the first time, how he was, he he was just a magnet. Yeah, it it, it was amazing. Um, and you know what I, I what I felt about the documentary, and I said yesterday, uh, is that they focused a little bit more on just how disliked he was early in his career, not just because of the Muslim thing, um, the Nation of Islam thing, but because he just he was so unique in the way that he ran his mouth and and the old school you know older generation didn't like it my mother who i i, I mentioned was a big boxing fan 
hated him yeah. because she thought he was a dancer. He didn't stand there and fight. He ran around the ring, she right. said. And the irony of that is years later, I introduced Ali to my mother and she fell in love with oh, him. <laughs> right, you yeah. know? Right. Yeah, he, he certainly had uh, had that. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, he was... It's funny, I think I've told you this about my father. My father was always sort of... Um, you know, a progressive, a contrarian. My father was an, uh, a Cassius Clay Ali guy when all of his friends were like, he runs his mouth too yeah. much. My father was an AFL guy, you know, not an NFL guy. My father, the first basketball I got as a kid was, was a red, ABA white, and blue ball. ABA ball. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I grew up with my father. My father was a huge fight fan. And I think I've told you this before, but he took me to a lot of those closed circuit you know, fights in the seventies that, you know, uh, and some of them were Ali fights. And then I certainly remember being at the Capitol center and watching on closed circuit, Leonard Duran one yeah. and Leonard Hearns one from, from Caesar's palace in 81. Um, uh, one other thing I just wanted to mention, cause I just sort of uh, laughed when I saw this, I don't know if you saw this, but Steve Bishotti, um, uh, the Ravens owner said, um, that the organization's vision is for Lamar Jackson to run less, yeah. you know? And it's like the Cam Newton thing. Like, Cam Newton, to his credit, when the organization started saying, he's taking too much of a pounding, we're going to run him less, and they tried to do that and it wasn't working as much, Cam said, to hell with this. No one no one wants to tackle me. Now, Cam's a different figure physically yeah. than Lamar Jackson is. Lamar Jackson probably has much more of an RG3 build, but... I'll be interested to see, you know, how much less Lamar Jackson actually runs. J uh, John Harbaugh said with Susie Kalber, this is like three weeks ago, and I think I mentioned it here. Um, he said, we are committed to this, meaning this offensive philosophy of having your quarterback be a primary run threat. He said, we're committed to it. Um, the owner feels differently. Sort of what was going on here in yeah. 2012 and 2013. I think Steve Bishotti and John Harbaugh, though, a little bit more functional in the relationship. And Mike Shanahan and Dan Snyder. Just a bit. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is, uh, you know, I saw Lamar Jackson up close for a couple of live Ravens games I went to. He's got a long way to go to be an NFL passer. Oh, no doubt. Long, uh, now, what, long way. What was interesting about their playoff loss at home to the Chargers when they got behind, he actually threw them back into the game, which was the first time he had done that, when a lot of people, me included, thought they might turn to Flacco when it was still a one-possession game and they couldn't throw the football. But anyway, um, I think they're one of the interesting teams to keep an eye on this year. They, are so, they were so good defensively last year, but they've lost Mosley. They don't have Suggs, their their leader, their team leader, overall team leader. Um, but that defense last year at times looked like as good a defense as we had seen in the yeah. NFL in in several and years. They, they may be on the verge of signing uh, Gerald McCoy. Uh, the, he's they're one of the they're one of the spots. Yeah. Um, the other there was one other um, thing I wanted to mention, and that is the league considering you know for this upcoming CBA discussion. Once again, they're throwing it out there about the eighteen game regular season 
the players I just don't think are going to go for it, and they would require so much more. But uh, personally, to me, as a fan, if you told me we're going to cut the preseason to two games and we're going to add two games in you know, in into January in an 18-game slate, we're going to increase the roster sizes and maybe give a second bye week, and then we're going to play the Super Bowl on President's Day weekend in February, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. I, I, I can't stand for preseason games. But whatever. I think they could cut the preseason games and leave the regular season games at 16. The problem is, is that the preseason games are all profit margin because yes. they don't pay the players. There's no The expenses are so much lower for these preseason yeah. games for the teams. All right. Uh, we've both picked Golden State in six. Yeah. I like the Raptors tonight, minus one and a half. We'll do a lot on game one tomorrow. We'll have... Redskins information about whatever comes out of OTAs today. Um, But have a great day.